Well, good morning. Uh, a special welcome to all of you. We're so glad that you're here this morning. If you're a guest of ours, you're, you're new to West Hills in your bulletin. You should have seen a connection card that just gives us a little bit of information uh, about you, and we can say a special thank you uh, for coming worshiping with us after the, after the service. My name is Thad Yessa. I'm one of the pastors here at West Hills. I'm so excited to open God's word with you this morning when we were discussing about, hey, busy weekend, Christmas Eve and Christmas. Uh, I, I didn't draw the short straw. I won and had the privilege to preach this weekend. And Pastor Will pretty much gave me like free range to pick whatever I want to preach on. And so you're going to hear Um, what I have been burdened to share and really what I love preaching about this morning in light of thinking about 2022. And we think that Christmas was yesterday and now we're thinking New Year's is right around the corner and that might bring one of two responses for you. You might be thinking, yes, I got everything done off my New Year's resolution list or you think, man, I didn't accomplish a single thing that I had said January 1st this past year I was going to accomplish. And so this morning, we are, are going to get back to the basics a little bit. We're going to be having a reset, meaning I'm not necessarily anticipating teaching you, preaching to you anything new from God's word, but bringing back old truths that we should call into consideration in light of beginning a new year, new beginnings, new seasons. Perhaps you're, like me, you're familiar with the experience of something goes wrong with your phone, your tablet, your TV, your computer, and so you call IT or someone who knows technology better than you, and nine times out of ten, they will always have the same response. Did you reset it? Did you turn it off and turn it back on? And I'm always like, well, of course, I wouldn't be calling you asking help if I didn't reset it already. And for whatever reason, I do not know, it seems to be magic that if you reset something and turn it back on, it seems to fix the problem. And so this morning, we're going to have a bit of a reset and think, hey, what areas are most important to us thinking about this next year, thinking about 2022. You can be turning in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be bouncing around a little bit this morning, but we'll be starting in 1 Peter chapter 2. I will pray one more time for us and we will dive on in this morning. Our Father, it is truly a joy to be in your house this morning, that we have the privilege to worship you, the privilege to open your word and hear you speak to us this morning. We pray that you would help us remove any distractions uh, that might cause us to not listen or hear the truths from your word, whether it would be Christmas was really stressful, or there's tensions in family relationships, or we're worried about this next year and what it will bring for us. But Father, help us to have peace. 
We pray that your spirit would open our ears and our hearts to the truths of your word. And I pray that these words would bring comfort and joy and peace and that, Father, we would be changed to be more like Jesus as a result of our time here this morning. We ask for your help. In your son's name, amen. We'll be looking at three areas to reset in 2022. The first being reset our relationships. And I'm not talking about finding a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, or anything like that, but in fact, our relationship with each other. Human beings have been created by God to live in relationship with one another. When God made Adam and he said, it is not good that man should be alone. That people not only desire relationships, but it's a necessity for the human race to continue based on relationships. We need relationships because we are made in the image of God, who as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being one God and three persons, living in relation to one another, we being people who bear God's image, we are relational beings who need each other, with whom we can live life with. And for Christians, this is especially true, that we need love and harmony of the communion of believers, that we need to be with other Christians. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 9, says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, when God saves sinners, he forgives their debts. He cleanses them from all unrighteousness, and he declares them to be righteous by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But salvation isn't just about the declaration of righteousness. It's about receiving a new identity, a new heart, a new spirit. Our salvation in Jesus not mere, is not merely a rescue of an individual. It's a deliverance of a person from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. It's about friendship with the world being changed into friendship into the family of God, that we are saved by grace through faith into union with Christ and into communion with his people that we are saved into the communion of saints where we find life and spiritual growth, that we need each other, that we can't just go off and live on an island by ourselves and grow to the highest level of sanctification, but that we need other believers in our lives speaking truth to us, convicting us of sin, pointing out where we are stumbling, encouraging us to keep fighting the good fight. We need other believers in our lives. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry 
for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in him in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from, the whole, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The Apostle Paul, oftentimes when talking about church family, he uses the idea of a body that the church is made up of different people or different parts, hands, feet, eyes, nose, elbows, whatever part you feel like putting in there. And he says, when the body has all its parts and is working together, there is not an issue. But if one part of the body is not functioning properly, it's not working to its max capacity. When I was in college, I broke my collarbone. And it wasn't the pain of the collarbone breaking that made it so frustrating. It was afterwards when I had to wear a sling close to my chest and had to figure out, okay, how am I going to take my shirt off? How am I going to put my pants on? How am I going to bathe? How am I going to type papers on my computer? My body wasn't working properly because something was broken. And what Paul says is that, hey, when someone's missing from the gathered body, the church isn't functioning on all cylinders. That when someone is missing or they're not using their giftings to help the church, that we should feel that pain. That we should feel as though something is not right. Because God brings the church together for more than just fellowship, more than just hearing the word. He does bring us together for that. But he also brings people to the church to better accomplish his mission. Meaning we are better together than we are apart. That we need to think of the church as our actual family, that we are brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, cousins and aunts and nieces and nephews. You know what you think is, why is this so important? Why is the church gathering as a body so important? Because the community of faith is what forms and reforms the Christian life. Believers are formed by the ongoing instruction of the word and fellowship of believers in the church. And we are reformed by brothers and sisters who hold us accountable through loving correction, reproof, and rebuke. And how is it even possible that we can live in that kind of authentic Christian relationship community together? I think there's four ways in which we can see how this is done. First is that we share our stuff with one another. We see in the early church in Acts chapter 4, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. 
And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Simply put, we care about each other's physical needs. That when we see a brother or a sister who has a need that we can meet, that we do it. Maybe it's a ride to church, a ride to a special activity. Maybe it is financially giving to them. That's why our church has a community needs fund, a fund that goes to meet the needs mostly in our community, but also sometimes outside the church community and people who come in, that we care about the physical needs of others, that we we share our stuff with one another, that the things that belong to us, we don't view them as our own, but simply gifts to use to be good stewards of what God has given us. Last year, we had a flood in Joy Hall, very heavy rains, and two people, Lou Rohan and Greg Stewart, brought their shop vacs to the church and started cleaning up the water. They used what they had to serve the church, simply because they had the stuff and what was needed for it, that we should be looking for ways that we can help take care of each other's physical needs. But more than just caring about each other's physical needs, we need to share our hearts with one another. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in 17 through chapter 3, he says this, he says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could not bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we too suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now Timothy has come to us and has brought us good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and our afflictions, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That when we believe the gospel and we're brought into the family of God and we're brought into the church family together, that we give part of our hearts to each other. That we should genuinely love one another. That we should, like the Apostle Paul, experience great joy and happiness when we see people growing in the gospel. When we get to be with people of God, that it brings us joy. But it's not just the joy, it can also be the sorrow and the, and the hardships. That when we go through 
difficult seasons, we allow ourselves to be vulnerable to the church body and say like, hey, it has been a really hard, difficult season for us. And our hearts feel the sorrow that we bear one another's burdens together. That we use those moments to encourage one another. That on a Sunday morning when someone says, hey, how are you doing? We don't sugarcoat it and say, I'm great. I'm good. I had a great weekend. But we really expose our hearts to say like, man, it, is, it has been tough. We allow ourselves to be vulnerable and we trust other people with the information we give them. We let them know about our sin struggles and we trust that they will think the best of us instead of going and gossiping with someone else. That their care and love for us is greater than our fear of what they'll do with the information that we give them. That we love each other, that we give our hearts to one another. We also stay, embrace the pain, and grow up with one another. One of the lesser fun passages in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 reads this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. I'll be honest, it is not always easy to share life together as a church family. Sometimes what it looks like is going to that brother or sister and saying, hey, I don't think you're making wise choices. I don't think what you're doing pleases God. Hey, I heard what you said about your husband. I don't think Christ was honored by that. And it's painful and hard and it's not fun. Who wants to go and deliver bad news to someone? But what we read is that if a brother or a sister sins against you, you should go and tell him his fault, not so that you can rub it in their face and say, look at how you messed up again, but so that they can be restored to you, that you can gain them back. Church discipline isn't about driving people away. It's about calling them to repent and believe the gospel and be changed by it. And that's really hard. But friends, the church family is worth fighting for. If Jesus came to earth to die on the cross so that we could believe the gospel and be brought into the family of God, we better believe that that family is worth fighting for. That if someone broke into your house during the middle of the night, that you would do everything within your power to protect your family. That is what we do with sin in the church, that we are trying to protect each other so that we aren't driven away, so that we aren't tempted, so that we can grow to be more like Jesus. And sometimes it means having a really hard, difficult conversation and praying that God gives you the right words to say so that that person can be restored, so that you can save that relationship. 
that God's family is worth fighting for, that our church family is worth fighting for, that we stick it out even when there's disagreements and hardships and things to work through, that we say, you know what? If God could save me from my sins into this family, I'm willing to work on my sins and forgive other people their sins to keep this family together. Fourthly is that family is about more than just me and you or your wife, husband, and the kids. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. Simply put, the gospel levels the playing field and says it doesn't matter what your background is, where you grew up what your education is, how much money you have in the bank. It says, if you are in Christ, you are a part of Christ's family, and therefore, you have a new family. That the older men in this church are spiritual fathers. The younger men are spiritual brothers. The older women are spiritual mothers and sisters. And that we care about each other, and that when we have good news to celebrate, the first people we should call is like, our church family and say, listen to how God has worked in my life. That we do life together, that we celebrate the highs and lows because you aren't just individual church members or attenders on a list, but we are family because of what Jesus has done for us. And we really don't get to pick our church family. Sure, at the beginning, you can pick a church that you like based on how good the various ministries that they offer are, how well-tuned the musicians are and how good the music sound, how engaging the preacher is. But really, once you commit to the church, you no longer have control about, hey, what's the pastor going to preach on this Sunday? What songs are the musicians going to pick this week? Who's coming in the church doors every Sunday morning? That we don't get to pick the family of God, but God gives us each other as family. That as family, we are to love, care for, cherish, rebuke, correct, give our hearts to, and be vulnerable for. We need to reset how it is we think about our relationships with the church. But we also need to reset our rhythms looking into this new year. A very familiar text to us is in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That as we think about the Bible, we must not only believe the Bible, but we must also obey the Bible. That this book 
informs what we believe about God, why we are here, how we are to live, how we are to view and treat other people, that this book is absolutely critical, or at least it should be to us. Paul David Tripp, in his newest book, What Do You Believe?, paints a picture of what it would look like for us to truly believe that the Bible is all that we often say it is and all that we read about it in the scriptures. He puts it this way. He says, what does it look like to live in light of the inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of the word of God? Well, if you really believe that the Bible is the word of God, preserved by God for you, wouldn't it be the most valuable esteemed, treasured, and well-used possession in your life? Would you not love the moments when you could sit with it, read it carefully, study its content, and meditate on its implications? Wouldn't you commit yourself to being an avid reader and a lifelong student of God? Wouldn't you work to be sure that you have understood and interpreted it correctly? Wouldn't you treasure the teachers and preachers whom God has raised up to walk you through his word? Wouldn't you want to make sure that everything you desire, think, say, and do was done in joyful submission and careful obedience to the word of God? Wouldn't you want to apply it to every area of your life? Wouldn't you run to its comforts and heed its call? Wouldn't it have more influence over your decisions than your friends, Google, or the voices on Twitter? Wouldn't biblical literacy and theological knowledge be your lifelong quest? Wouldn't you be looking for every opportunity to share its glorious message with others? And wouldn't you grieve the moments you must confess that you ignored or resisted its message? Wouldn't it be the thing that shapes the way you approach every area of life? Wouldn't that quiet time when you separate yourself from other people and other responsibilities and it's just you, your Lord, and his word be your favorite part of the day? Wouldn't you give God heartfelt praise for the amazing gift of his word every day? Now, I almost didn't put that quote in because it is so convicting even to me that I do not cherish God's word like that. That yes, I enjoy reading it and am encouraged by it, but I do not eat it like Paul Tripp put it. A way for us to think about the Bible is Matt Smethurst puts it this way, that the God of heaven and earth has forfeited his own personal privacy to reveal himself to us, to befriend us through a book. That scripture is like an all-access pass into the revealed mind and will of God. That God wants us to know him. That God wants us to obey him. And he tells us how to do that through his book. Now what we need to understand, all of us, is that from the youngest to the oldest, we are all being influenced by something whether it be friends or school or coworkers, the news, social media, podcasts, books, whatever it may be, but oftentimes those things that are influencing us most are contrary to what we read in the Bible. And if we are going to live the Christian life, 
We are going to have to open the Bible daily. Now you're probably thinking, okay, Rhythms, this is the moment where we start passing out the how to read through the Bible in a year checklist sheet. But no, yes, we are to read the whole of scriptures that we don't get the excuse that it's too long didn't read with the Bible. But through this next year, commit ourselves to establishing rhythms that put us in the book daily. Maybe it looks like reading through the New Testament or reading through the Old Testament or picking one book of the Bible for each month of the year and diving into it and devouring the pages. There's no magic plan for reading the Bible. It's just a matter of reading the Bible, the whole Bible, which means when you start your reading plan, you get to Leviticus. You stop and remember that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. That when you're reading in the Gospels and you're like, hey, this Gospel sounds very familiar to the one I just read, that you keep reading because God put it there for a reason. That when you don't understand, you don't quit. That you read or ask for help or look at commentaries that you call your pastor up and say, hey, what do you think this means or how can I understand this passage and apply it to my life? That God has given us an all-access pass to him, but oftentimes it sits on our shelves. That if we really believe the Bible is an all-access pass into the mind of God, that means it tells us what's most important to him. And what he wants us to know and how it is he wants us to live. That quote from Paul Tripp, as convicting as it was, boils down to this. Do I, do we value the Bible? We can read in the Bible and it talks about itself, the word of God. It says the Bible is a lamp that illuminates, Psalm 119, that it is medicine that heals, Proverbs 4, that it is rain and snow that causes growth, Isaiah 55, that it is a fire that refines and consumes, Jeremiah 23, that it is food that nourishes, Matthew 4, that it is a sword that brings life and death, Ephesians 6, that it is our food we need to eat daily, Jeremiah 15, that it is our life, Deuteronomy 32, our comfort, our strength, our guidance, our hope, our love, our joy, our treasure, all of those last ones are found in Psalm 119, that it is everything that we need to live this life faithfully. And it's amazing how it is so accessible to us on our phones. I have dozens of copies in my office and it's amazing how little time we spend reading this book that gives valuable knowledge versus how much time we spend binge-watching shows. That's me. I'm saying I binge-watch too many shows instead of reading the Bible. That if we truly believe the Bible is all that it says it is, that it should be the first thing we desire in the morning and the last thing we think about at night. Are we following the Bible? Are we in it enough to fight back against the raging lies of the world? Are we being more influenced by secular culture? Are our opinions formed by, about current issues shaped by the Bible or our Facebook 
feeds. That this book answers life's questions, that it is the roadmap we need for how to live this life well. And God gives it to us freely. He says, here you go. This is what you need to know. Friends, may this next year we reset our rhythms to love God's word. And lastly, in thinking in light of a new year and fresh starts, we should reset our responsibilities. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, which we quote every week in our benediction reads this, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The central message of Scripture revolves around the central purpose of the people of God, which is to glorify God. And we supremely glorify God through the way that he has chosen to be most glorified, and that is through the redeeming of sinful people. It is through our participation in God's redemption plan to bring sinners to God that God is most glorified. That the best way we can glorify God with our lives is to preach the gospel that the gospel reshapes our responsibilities, that yes, you have responsibilities at your workplace and at home, and this takes precedence, that it should always be at the forefront of our mind. One theologian puts it like this, the Great Commission. He says, you may understand the whole gospel of Matthew, but if you miss this point, that God wants to redeem lost people, you have missed the whole point of the book. That Jesus came down to offer salvation, to seek and to save the lost. John Piper has put it this way. He says that missions exist because worship doesn't. Meaning the only reason that you and I and every other believer are here on earth is to seek and save the lost, just like Jesus' purpose was to seek and save the lost. Recently, I had a pastor friend put on Facebook that he was in a terrible car accident. And when the tow truck came there, the tow truck driver said, I can't believe you're still alive. And my friend's response was, it must mean God's not done with me yet. That God leaves us here on earth instead of taking us home so that we can proclaim the gospel to other people. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says that every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That either you proclaim the gospel or you have yet to fully understand what the gospel means for your life that it shapes all your priorities, that it changes everything about you. We read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That because of the gospel we become ambassadors of God. That everything we do, we do on God's behalf. That we are a part of that same ministry of reconciliation, of calling lost sinners to come home to be with God where they will experience greater riches than they can even imagine. And whenever I hear sermons or read about being missional or hear podcasts about living on mission, there are three words that come to mind that I've heard from a very young age that it's about location, vocation, and recreation. Where you live, where you work, where you play, that is where you are to be on mission for God. That if God is sovereign enough to put you in your home or your apartment complex or the school dormitory, then he is sovereign enough to stir the hearts of the people around you. That you don't accidentally live in the house you live. That God has put you there for a reason. That everything we do, that if God is sovereign over all things, then he has sovereignly placed us in our specific locations. So what does that mean for us? Are you complaining about your job? God probably has you there for a reason. Your student says that they hate school. Remind them that it says God has you there for a reason. You find your children very frustrating and disobedient. God has put them in your home for a reason, to preach the gospel to the sinners. And you don't have to walk into your job every day and beat everyone over the head with the Bible. But what you can do is you can start every day and pray and ask God to give you an opportunity to love people, to display godly work ethic. To have an opportunity to talk to someone about the greatest news, the gospel. To be able to share about your week and how you got to be with God's family. Or whatever situation you find yourself, stay-at-home mom, teacher, accountant, wherever it is, God has put you there for a reason. It's not by accident. We have to proclaim the gospel Because if we truly believe the gospel is all that it says it is, otherwise the gospel really isn't the good news that we thought. Because if it is truly the best news, we can't help but proclaim it to every single person we come in contact with. We can't help but share the good news about how God took our lives that we wrecked because of our own sin and then changed us into this being that's struggling but becoming more like Jesus every day that we are not perfect but we are faithfully following after God. That all of these three things, our relationships, our rhythms, and our responsibilities are shaped and changed by that good news in the gospel. So what does that do for us as we think about 2022? 
I would encourage you to have these three commitments. Commitment to the church. That you would see the people who gather here on a Sunday as more than just individuals who share a common bond by what we read in the scriptures, but that you are brothers and sisters bought by the blood of Jesus and therefore you are worth fighting for and therefore you can share your burdens with one another and you can care for one another and you can help each other grow to be more like Jesus, that you commit to the church that you commit to reading the scriptures, establishing a pattern, a rhythm that helps you spend time in God's word, whether it's reading in community with other believers or with your spouse or saying, I'm going to commit to read this chunk of scripture or the whole Bible, but you say, God, help me to have that desire to love and devour your word so that I can know what it is you want me to know. And thirdly, commit to the one person who God has put on your heart to share the gospel with. Whether it's to bring someone new into your life or that person who's already in your life that you think about, who is that one person that I would love to see come to know Christ and the riches of the gospel and commit to pray for them. Commit to take advantage of every opportunity you can. Maybe it's the coworker. Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your unsaved parent. But that you commit and you pray and you believe that like Jesus says, that he has all authority on heaven and earth and he can change hearts. But that we would be faithful in our duty and our responsibility to tell other people the good news of Jesus. I think if these three things are reset in our lives, our relationships, our rhythms, and our responsibilities, regardless of whatever, whatever else we might accomplish through this next year, run a marathon, read 52 books, whatever, that we would be able to look and see God is pleased by what we do.